Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. There's a lot to get to today, and we've got quite a bit today about public health. In a moment, I'll talk with somebody from the Trust for America's Health about an annual report they do on public health. Then Dr. Kevin Sherritt with Kettering Health in the Dayton area talks about why people in rural areas have a lower vaccination rate. He says a lack of trust in the government is one reason. In about 20 minutes, Dr. Amy Acton, former director of the Ohio Department of Health, talks with Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Tracy also has segments about the new law in Ohio that allows people to carry concealed firearms without a permit or safety training and a rally at the State House held by victims of crime. In about 45 minutes, I'll talk with a Cleveland Clinic doctor about stroke. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Trust for America's Health is. Well, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan public health policy research and advocacy organization. We work to advance policies that support health for all people and communities. And you're out with, uh, this is actually something that you do annually and, and did well before the pandemic, looking at public health preparedness by state. Right. We've been doing a version of this report for, for about two decades, looking at how our nation is preparing at the federal and state level for public health emergencies like COVID and natural disasters. And what are you finding uh, during these uh, rather turbulent times? Well, we found that uh, the nation continues to underfund uh, the basic public health infrastructure and workforce that we really need to be better prepared for the next emergency. You've kind of broken it down by state. How does Ohio rank among the states in this? Ohio is one of three states that actually jumped up two tiers in this year's report from our lowest tier last year to the high tier this year. There's some areas where Ohio improved and that uh, that helps their score. So we look across um, 10 indicators that we feel help uh, would help a state become more prepared um, across public health, health care, emergency management and other sectors. So some areas that helped Ohio in this year's report, the state joined the Nurse Licensure Compact, which uh, allows out-of-state nurses to come work in the state during an emergency more easily. So we saw that used a lot during the pandemic when there were workforce shortages. Ohio also had a fairly significant increase in its public health funding, a 20% increase over the prior year. And the state has increased its public health funding for three years in a row. Are you seeing uh, big differences or do you look into, uh, you know, whether states that are run by one political party over the other do a different job in how they prepare public health in these situations? We did not break anything down by political party. I think there are some some reports out there that try to do that, but that's not the purpose of this year. Okay. You know, it's interesting here because uh, back in the, the very early days of the pandemic, our then health director, Dr. Amy Acton, was credited by a lot of people for putting it on the line and not holding back, even though it sounded a little bit like what she was saying was over the top to some people. I remember at one point, pretty early on, she said that Ohio could see 10,000 coronavirus cases per day. And that's back when there were very few. And that ended up happening. And uh, it seems like that kind of messaging from public health is really important when you look back over it. Accurate and timely public health communications is really a critical role of public health. 
And we're learning more by the day about the impact of misinformation and disinformation and really how important it is to be uh, to be frank and, and speak with the public about what we know and what we don't know. And, and obviously this was a rapidly changing virus and what we knew about it changed by the day as well. But it really did put public health kind of on trial, and it failed in, in some people's eyes. I mean, there were you know state legislatures, including here in Ohio, that have tried to take away some of the, the power that the governor or that health departments have in issuing health orders. Yeah, we are seeing in, in numerous states um, attempts to limit the public, basic public health authorities, like making sure that children are vaccinated before they go to school, making sure that um, that public health has the authorities it needs to protect the public during uh, an infectious disease outbreak. But really, you know, part of the challenge of the last two years is due to a, a major underinvestment in public health. We haven't given the system the tools they need to um, be able to detect a disease early, quickly, and contain it before it becomes a, pan- a pandemic of this magnitude. Talking with Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. In the event of another pandemic, or if this thing, you know, if there's another variant that just becomes even worse than anything we've seen to this point, do you think that public health around the country is going to be able to play the same role it has in the past, or is there going to be a lot more suspicion? What's your thought on that? Well, we certainly are not out of the woods yet with this pandemic, and we we can't let our guard down. I think we're entering a new phase where um, public health officials are learning how to uh, live with the disease. We know now that we're not going to eradicate it, most likely, but how can we best contain it? So we need to make sure that public health has those tools to be able to communicate with people where they are and reach across political divides so that we're better protecting every community. Is there still a sense that public health funding is something that is needed and uh, and will continue to grow in, in at least in some of these states where it has been? Well, certainly there, one of the um, things that we point out in this report is how little funding there has been for the basic public health infrastructure. So uh, imagine we had a fire department but didn't give them a firehouse or didn't give them trucks or train uh, the firefighters. But that's really what we've been asking public health to do over the past two decades. So the short-term funding we're seeing for COVID response isn't enough to build and retain a workforce that has really been depleted over the past two decades. And it's so interesting when I look at your list of uh, states and and how they're performing. If you look at some of the low-tier states, you know, you've got places like West Virginia and Arkansas on the low end, but also Oregon, which I don't think you can find states that are so different from each other than that group. Yeah, there really was no pattern based on geography or any other factor, um, just based on a very limited number of data points that we look at. But it's really intended to give states a checklist of things that they can do. Um, We try to choose data that's really actionable, that that, uh, state policymakers, as well as the public health sector, the health sector, can uh, take steps to make uh, the state more prepared. And last question, is there any state in particular that stands out as as kind of the model of how to go forward? Well, I I think we've seen success stories across states in terms of uh, building partnerships um, with uh, community-based organizations like churches, like um, groups that serve uh, populations that have been left behind typically. We need to continue those partnerships moving forward, not just throughout this pandemic, but so that we can be better prepared for future emergencies. 
And Dara, where can folks find this information online? Our report is on our website, tfah.org, for Trust for America's Health. Great. Dara Lieberman with uh, Trust for America's Health. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday of this week, the Ohio Department of Health held a news conference to provide an update on the pandemic. One of the speakers from the Dayton area, Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Kettering Health's medical director for rural health. He addressed the issue of folks in rural areas of Ohio having a lower vaccination rate than those in urban and suburban areas. This runs about five minutes. In terms of uh, what we're seeing in the rural communities compared to our general population, the vaccination rates certainly are are lagging. And um, we're seeing about a 20% decrease or a, a difference between the rural and suburban and urban areas. And not only in Ohio, but nationwide, I think the CDC uh, statistics bear that out. And I think there's several reasons for it. Um, you know, initially, early on, it was just because of the availability in rural areas. Certainly, you don't have the same levels of availability that you, you might have in some of the urban and suburban areas. And early on, certainly with the, the rollout of the vaccine, we were, we were seeing that. And, and uh, we worked really hard and continued to work in those areas to make the vaccine available. As time goes, though, the, the availability of the vaccine is, is uh, to the point now where we're not seeing that discrepancy between the urban areas and the, and the rural areas uh, in terms of the availability of the vaccine. So clearly, there are other variables involved. And, um, you, you know, as I look at it, and what I'm seeing uh, on a practical note is I, I don't think it's any one um, uh, factor that, that is leading to it. I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. And the thing that's interesting when you look is that there's also discrepancy uh, for vaccination rates, when we look at other vaccines, when you look at the, you know, the shingles vaccine, for example, or the pneumonia vaccine and, and the, the flu vaccine, the influenza vaccine, there has always been uh, a discrepancy between the rural uh, communities and, and the urban, more urban suburban areas. And as I said, I think availability is one. That's that's certainly one one issue that needs to be addressed. And I, and I know that. The Ohio Department of Health and our local health departments, as, as Chris just uh, alluded to, are working really hard to get the vaccine out to where it is available to, to everyone. But, you know, the people uh, in our rural communities and where I live, many of them live a mile off the road. Uh, they don't see their neighbors. They have to drive 10 miles to get a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk. And when you live in that kind of a setting, you, you kind of tend to look at life differently, you know, and people who live in these areas you know, have a, a real independent uh, spirit about them, which is which is a very positive characteristic, but yet it also gives them a different mindset maybe towards uh, illness and, and towards vaccines. So, you know, the people who live in the rural areas are drawn to the rural areas for a reason, and uh, it, it does affect, you know, kind of their approach to life. And so, uh, all of these things have to be factored in, and certainly the availability of the vaccines getting better all the time, and uh, we're seeing, you know, more and more people getting vaccinated, but certainly not nearly enough. And there's certainly, as you said, a, a room for improvement and, and opportunities, if you will. Now, patients are sharing with me some of the same 
uh, concerns that, that we're hearing across the board. And I think if you had to break it down to, to one word uh, that, that is the most compelling reason people are not getting vaccinated is because of trust. They, they simply uh, do not trust uh, our government. Let's face it, they don't trust our government. They don't trust the vaccine. They don't trust the vaccine uh, manufacturers. They, they, there really is still a, a, a level of distrust out there. And um, what we have seen is that they come to us, they come to their providers, they come to their primary care physicians, they come to their advanced practice providers, they come to their local health department to get uh, information. And is the information that they get helps them form a decision. So the patients that we see, the patients that I see every day, I'm still asked every day about the vaccine. Do you, do you trust it? What do you think? And you know, we're over a year into this now. And what I'm able to share with patients now more than ever is that yes, I do trust the vaccine. We talk about the technology. We still talk about the, the, the mRNA technology. And, and I share with them that, that these vaccines uh, raise the bar in terms of vaccination. And these are the best vaccines that I've ever seen in terms of being effective and being safe. And, I, and, I, and that's just not talk. That's, that's substantiated uh, time and time again. And so we explain to patients that, you know, we're going to face COVID. You are going to face you COVID. There's no just no question about it. And are you better off with the vaccine or without the vaccine? And the, the numbers continue. The more we study these vaccines, the more there is for us to be confident in them. And the vaccines clearly make a difference. They clearly are game changers. And so we're urging everyone that we can talk to uh, to reconsider if they've decided not to to be vaccinated. We've asked them to reconsider and we've told them it's not too late. This situation is evolving and it's perhaps even more important now than ever to be vaccinated. So we, um, you know, we address their concerns. We ask them to talk to their friends, talk to their family, talk to share the information we give them because we realize we, you know, we have limited exposure, but as, as the word gets out and, and they share with uh, what they've learned from us with with uh, the people they come in contact with, hopefully the level of acceptance will improve. Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Kettering Health Medical Director for Rural Health in the Dayton area, was also asked how he talks to parents who are leery of having their kids vaccinated. So, you know, the first thing we share with them is is what uh, has already been stated here is that this this uh, virus is ever changing and it that's the second wave really had a much more dramatic impact than even the first wave. And, and we cannot, the only thing we can really predict about this is that there, there will be changes and it, it will evolve and there will be, there will be more variants um, coming down the road. And so again, we come down to the basic discussion, is your child better going forward and facing this virus and facing the, the changes in the virus? Are they better? being vaccinated versus being unvaccinated. And we talk about simple benefit versus risk. And so the benefit clearly outweighs the risk. Now, parents, first of all, if a parent has not been vaccinated themselves and if they're if they have strong feelings, then obviously those strong feelings carry over towards their children, rightfully so. If we see a lot of parents who are vaccinated realize the value of the vaccine for themselves, but are hesitant to have their children vaccinated because they say, listen, I just don't know about the long-term effects. I don't know, uh, you know, is, is this, are we gonna find out five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that, that there's some sort of really catastrophic problem with this vaccine? And so 
I share with them, first of all, that if there are problems with vaccines, we know those problems early on. And the fact that we now have over a year's worth of experience with this vaccine, that we would have would have seen those problems. Secondly, I explain to them that this the, the idea of vaccinating and protecting your children from future illness is obviously not new. These same parents that uh, are, are struggling some with the COVID vaccine uh, recognize the value of the other vaccines that they, they have their children vaccinated with. And I explained to them that this vaccine, in my opinion, this is my opinion, and I think the, the opinion is well substantiated in science. This vaccine is extremely effective and it's extremely safe, not only short-term, but long-term, and perhaps not to diminish the effectiveness or the safety of the other vaccines that we, we use every day. These vaccines are at least that safe and at least uh, uh, that effective or more. So, you know, if you accept the idea of the value of vaccine and the protection going forward, then this vaccine uh, should be even more accepted than the, the vaccines that they've, they've come accustomed to for measles, mumps, and, and other uh, illnesses. But the last thing I tell them is this, as I said, I tell them that you have a choice. You can either face this unvaccinated or face it vaccinated. The consequences long-term from the virus are much more significant than the consequences of the vaccine. And so simply it always comes back down to the benefit versus the risk. And again, in my opinion, the benefit dramatically outweighs any potential risk. Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Kettering Health Medical Director for Rural Health, speaking at this week's press conference from the Ohio Department of Health. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This morning's program at 1130 on 10 TV continues her interview with Dr. Amy Acton. You'll hear the first part of it in just a moment. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. This morning, we are starting with an exclusive sit-down interview with Dr. Amy Acton. We talked about her experience as director of the Ohio Department of Health, how she guided the state through that early part of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the lessons learned along the way. How would you advise the state um, as we continue to live with this in terms of, you know, how do we navigate this new world? You talked about grace and mercy. What else do we need to do? Well, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not in a position of advising. And certainly when you're in those roles, you have a lot of behind the scene knowledge that mm-hmm. not all of us have. But I maybe would say more to people at home. Um, something I recognized very early on in this pandemic by accident, I happened to be in the White House the last week of February, I had a very strong sense this was already here, and um, but we didn't know it yet. It wasn't being said. 
I, I joke around that I Googled the word pandemic because even though I taught global public health because I wondered why we hadn't yet called it that. Um, I, I really feel that this was always a war on a common enemy. Um, if this was a virus, one of the hardest things about public health is a lot of what you do and when you knock it out of the park and you get it right, you don't see what we just prevented. <laughs> and, and similarly with this virus, it's just been the worst, almost science fiction like nemesis um, that you couldn't make up if you're trying to make up a movie called Contagion. Um, be, and, and, but it's something we all have in common. At, a, at the very thrust of it, it is an enemy that the entire world shares. And you have to respect the enemy. Maybe sometimes we don't always respect nature and just the ways of the world. Um, and so this is still out there. And there, there are, you know, we know that the conditions are ripe, that we probably will see this more often than we did. It might not be nearly 100 years. Um, um, so we have to learn to live like with the knowledge of this as being part of our ecosystem. So you talked about collective trauma, and I want to go from there and ask you about um, how you think that trauma, the, the time period of the past two years yeah. is going to impact us in the, in the next five to ten years. And I'm thinking about mental health, yeah. and I'm really thinking about our children and our families. Absolutely. Um, they always knew, so many people don't know that um, it was actually after 9-11, uh, George W. Bush read John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, um, and we were trying to figure out uh, what were the gravest security risks to our country, and they realized that it was actually a global pandemic um, or a biologic weapon would actually unmoor us. Um, it's not just the virus. As we've learned, there's a contagion far worse than a virus, and that is fear and our intolerance for ambiguity. And it's in this unmooring that we experience that they predicted, even back then, and this playbook got passed from president to president, they predicted all sorts of unrest would occur. They predicted that there would be these disruptions of global supply chains. They predicted that there would be bad actors that would take advantage of the facts that we were all unmoored. And they called it cascading consequences. And so it's not just enough to make a policy decision. As I've always said, you can't mandate your way or do a policy. We had to teach all of us how to live with this and throw an emergency break in the beginning. What strikes you most in terms of um, what we learned through all of this? And so I'm hoping some of the lessons of moving forward from COVID are about how we are gonna seize our life and seize our health and our well-being. How do we wanna live? I hope we also see that as, you know, one of the biggest lessons of public health that I teach is that we gained 30 years life expectancy in the last century, but only five of it was due to everything I learned in medical school, fixing broken things or things that are in our individual control. Almost all of our increased life expectancy came from things that we have to solve together. Our interview was wide-ranging. You can watch Face the State next week to hear more of what Dr. Acton has to say, including what she says is next for her and how she sees her place in history. It's very unlikely that Ohio has a full primary election on May 3rd. This comes after the state Supreme Court rejected another set of district maps, calling them unconstitutional. 10TV asked Governor DeWine about a solution. He says the commission could pass a resolution to hiring three map makers, two Republican and one Democrat, 
put them in a room and have them follow three rules. We have to follow the law, we have to follow the Supreme Court decision, but we also have to follow what the Constitution tells us. We have to do all of those, try to do all of those at the same time and do them within 10 days. I don't know any other way of doing that. Now, as the governor mentioned, they have just a matter of days to come up with another map, which he agrees will be a tough challenge. The newly signed constitutional carry bill will become law in less than three months. What exactly does that mean? Well, under this new law, you can conceal carry if you are 21 or older and legally own the gun. Also under this law, no training or permit to carry the gun is necessary. This news is sparking some confusion, including where people can and cannot take a gun. 10TV's Kevin Landers explains what you need to know. Index finger stays off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Starting this June, gun out in parallel with your dominant eye. Training like this will no longer be required if you want to carry a concealed weapon in Ohio. It's a change Joe King welcomes, sort of. Training is very important when it comes to anything, really. But if you're going to carry a firearm responsibly, you need to make sure you know how to operate it. Ohio's change in permitless concealed carry won't eliminate a business's right to ban guns on their property. Places like the Columbus Zoo, theaters, most restaurants, or CODA buses will continue to ban weapons on their property. Many wonder if crime will be on the rise with more gun owners concealing firearms who've never been trained. The gun lobby says no. We asked Stanford law professor John Donahue, who has written extensively on gun issues. The number of gun thefts will undoubtedly skyrocket in, in Ohio as more people start carrying guns because they tend to leave them in their car. I think there have been 14 published studies that have found that right to carry will increase crime. Ohio will join 22 states to pass permitless concealed carry. Gun stores like this one say they expect to see a drop-off in people taking gun safety classes because it's no longer required. But that doesn't mean, they say, they won't encourage people to take the classes anyway. Well, you need to make sure you not just have a firearm, but you have the skills, tools, and knowledge to safely carry a firearm. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Governor Mike DeWine is facing a lot of criticism for signing this most recent bill. 10TV's Brittany Bailey asked him to respond to the backlash. About half the states now have this provision, and this is, I think, consistent with uh, the United States Constitution. That's the response from Governor Mike DeWine after he signed the controversial constitutional carry law. The law allows any legal gun owner to carry a weapon without a permit. The NRA praised the move, but many law enforcement organizations and Democrats have condemned it. The law also means if you get pulled over, you don't have to tell an officer if you have a gun. Most police departments have told us uh, that what they will do, that that will simply become part of the protocol. That when a police officer walks up, there's always some questions that they uh, are supposed to ask, that the department tells them to ask. That will be uh, probably the first question that they'll ask. This would be the second law Governor DeWine has signed in the past two years that has been praised by Second Amendment supporters. Just last year, he signed the Stand Your Ground law, which also drew a lot of criticism. This all comes nearly three years after this moment. Just a couple of months later, Governor DeWine rolled out the strong Ohio bill, which quickly fizzled out in the legislature. We pressed him on that today. What do you say to the people who have shouted for you to do something and we've signed two different laws instead of that? We're still asking the state legislature to take action on a bill, which I think is a is a, frankly a no-brainer. And that simply is, it says that violent repeat offenders who commit most of the violent crime today 
if they are in possession of a gun, the judge should have the ability to put them away for at least 10 years. And that was 10 TV's Brittany Bailey reporting. That bill that Governor DeWine mentioned is House Bill 383. It was introduced last August and referred to committee in September. There's been no movement since then. All right, we want you to take a look at this powerful scene at the State House. 200 crime survivors walk the Capitol steps to push for more protection for victims. The group is calling for employment and housing protections through several bipartisan bills. Before we break down what the bills would do, let's hear from the voices of the victims. What do you want? Change! What do you want? Change! What do you want? Change! My name is Rukaya Zafraabdoumutaklim, and I am the mother of Suleiman Abdoumutaklim. His life was brought to an end. June 29th, at 10.30, three assailants walked up behind him, shot him in the back of the neck, and what I saw were children. And I didn't know that until I was in the courtroom of juvenile court. I looked at them and I said, what happened to these children? Children are not born with weapons in their hands. If we do not step up and save our future, we have no future. So I'm here because he is saying, help them. Do not let this cycle of crime continue because the repeat of this cycle of trauma only gives us more cycle of crime. And my son is saying, please, please change, improve our laws. Here's a breakdown of the changes the group is demanding. First, funding for additional trauma recovery centers. Extend unpaid leave for crime victims and their loved ones as they navigate legal battles and establish housing protections to allow victims to relocate safely. For a closer look at the bills, head over to 10tv.com slash featured links. A powerful message from the president of Ukraine to the United States. Up next, Ohio lawmakers in Washington, D.C. weigh in on whether we are doing enough to help. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Today it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Peace in your country doesn't depend anymore only on you and your people. It depends on those next to you, on those who are strong. Strong doesn't mean weak. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivering an emotional address to the joint session of Congress. He pushed for the airspace over Ukraine to be closed and asked for more support. President Biden later announced the United States is sending more anti-aircraft and anti-armor weapons and drones to Ukraine. Here's how Ohio Representative Troy Balderson in D.C. reacted to the Ukrainian president's message. When he's addressing us, the, the realness really starts setting in. Obviously, we're watching what's being displayed on TV and, and, and through media right now, and uh, we know um, our office is somewhat directed. We, we have a staffer that's uh, affected by um, the situation that's happening in Ukraine. But to be in the room, the quietness, the um, 
everyone was listening. You didn't see a lot of phones, which is pretty rare for members of Congress not to be on their telephone. When asked if the U.S. should create a no-fly zone, as Zelensky had requested, Representative Troy Balderson and Representative Mike Carey say that is going a step too far. The problem you have with the no-fly zone is once you do that, then, then you, you could have engagement from, um, from our country. Um, and, and I think we, we don't want to have American servicemen and women um, you know, fighting in, in, in the Ukraine. I think we just need to do everything that we can to support both humanitarianly, both uh, militarily. Um, uh, but, but I just, uh, at this time, I do not believe it is the, it, it, it's the correct path for this country. Senator Rob Portman returned from Poland. He was helping refugees in, for, who were coming from Ukraine. He had this to say about his experience. You see the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. The worst of humanity is these images we saw today when President Zelensky showed us the video and we see in our TVs and our online constantly. But we also saw the best of humanity in refugees helping one another, in refugees with an incredibly traumatic, sad story, but also hope and confidence that liberty will win out, but they want our help. Senator Sherrod Brown. The president has been aggressive, but he's been cautious. And he's moved, we've moved our allies as fast and quickly as we can to keep this coalition together. Uh, but the president has to be cautious about potentially um, escalating this war outside of, of Ukraine. And, um, and, and we've got to be very careful with the no-fly zone. What does this mean in terms of, does that mean the Russians then use um, tactical nuclear weapons? So um, I think we've done this uh, in a unified way. We've, we've done most of what uh, President Zelensky needs us to do and has asked us to do. We'll continue to work with him. Meantime, people here in Ohio are doing whatever they can to help, and that includes a native living in Plain City. The Ukrainian government recruited him to support his home country. That task includes collecting supplies to send over and advocating to lawmakers to do what they can to help. 10TV's Lindsay Mills has his story. Vera was born. Vera was raised. When Vladimir Jelezny left Ukraine in 1991, this flag was not a symbol of his home yet. The country wasn't independent, still part of the Soviet Union. I decided to escape the empire of evil. He and his wife arrived in Plain City, where they have lived since. I do not think I can find the right words to, to express. Watching the war unfold, he feels helpless. He applauds the leadership of Ukraine's president, who addressed Congress Wednesday. He is standing on uh, truth. He is really addressing the problem. He is uh, trying to gather the whole humanity of, uh, of the world to stop the senseless bloodshed. Days ago, he received a letter from the Ukrainian government seeking his help to gather money, supplies, and advocate to elected officials. He signed the paperwork, and he's getting started, creating a foundation. I wish for Ukraine to have that kind of clear, blue, and peaceful skies as we do forever. That was 10TV's Lindsay Mills reporting. The video is coming out of Ukraine 
are so difficult to watch. Military forces launching explosives to families fleeing their homes for safety. Mental health experts and advocates say people are absolutely having a physical and mental reaction to what they are seeing. Ken Yeager from the Stress, Trauma and Resilience Program at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center told me the images make it hard not to view the world as a less safe place. If they're coming through your devices, many of them are unfiltered. So they are very, very graphic, and it leads one to question, oh my gosh, can one human being do this to another? It absolutely is a way of of helping yourself by helping others. Um, Are you doing okay with this if it's a younger person? Um, Explaining that, you know, this is happening, it is real, but it's not here. It's a long way away. Um, with the older population talking about how are you feeling with this. By this summer, every state must establish a new mental health hotline. Is Ohio going to be ready? We'll tell you what's happening to get the 988 line up and running. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. An automation company celebrated the grand opening of its new facility in Lewis Center. ATS Industrial Automation will make machinery for General Motors automated battery pack assembly lines. The goal is to add up to 100 jobs this year to meet that demand. This is a place that you can be proud to work. We can be a part of that journey. We can build, we can grow, we can develop together and we can have future employees. We have the best in the country, the best in the world, and frankly, it's one of the reasons that uh, Ohio is red hot and people are coming here and people are, are in fact, expanding here. Governor DeWine was a guest at the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and he took a spin in the all-new electric Hummer. The company plans to add another 300 to 500 jobs by the year 2025. Another big job creator in our state, Intel, announced a big investment. Over the next decade, Intel is promising $100 million. It will help build a pipeline to education and research to help develop workers in semiconductor manufacturing. $50 million will go directly to Ohio higher education. Ohio leaders say there is a focus to develop STEM programs in minority communities. You know, as we look to the future in Ohio, uh, our goal is for every Ohioan to live up to their God-given potential, no matter where they're born, what their zip code is, where they grow up. The National Science Foundation is matching $50 million to help fund the research. The campus in New Albany is expected to bring in 7,000 construction jobs and 3,000 full-time positions. It's expected to be complete in the year 2025. Right now, if someone is experiencing a mental health crisis, they may call 911. But a new helpline is coming this summer. The new number to dial will be 988. The change is federally mandated, but each state needs to figure out how to implement it. For those in crisis, advocates say 988 will be more than just a number, 
but a new approach to our crisis response systems. 10TV's Kiana Deiches explains if Ohio is ready. People are dying at a rapid pace and people are being touched by that in all spectrums of life. For years, Yavez Ellis has been helping people navigate trauma. One situation in particular, a homicide, led him to counsel teens. These young people had to wait because the body had fell behind their car. So these young people couldn't just roll over the body and leave the scene. They had to sit and wait. And, and watch somebody pass away. He says sharing resources to help them deal with those emotions made all the difference. What is the address of your emergency? Soon he'll be able to direct them to a new national hotline. Instead of calling 911 if you're experiencing a mental health crisis, you'll dial 988. When someone's in a crisis, it's very hard to think of the right number to call or who you have to look for to look something up, that's really hard. But is Ohio prepared to make the process easier? An Ohio House committee voted to add the creation of the hotline to House Bill 468, which now moves to the Senate. The program is mandated by the federal government, but will be paid for by the state. Here, it's fully funded for the first 18 months. We are looking at the next GA then to be able to make the decisions about the continuous funding based on the reports back from the committee. Meanwhile, Adam H. is making preparations to launch the hotline in four months. While I think it's going to be a push to get there by mid-July, I have no doubt that we'll do it. When they do, Ella says it'll be a lifeline for mental health. And hopefully we begin to teach it like we teach 911, that when you're dealing with crisis, we're hoping that you can call this number to be able to help you feel less suicidal, less depressed, less overwhelmed. And that was Kiana Deiches reporting for us. 988 will go live in every state by July 16th. For now, if you are in distress, you can call the existing National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Number is 1-800-273-8255. Thank you all so much for joining us here today on Face the State. Have a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Still to come on Columbus Perspective, a doctor from the Cleveland Clinic talks about stroke. And I'll speak with Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti-Defamation League. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide. And their families in their communities, in their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Peter Rasmussen. He is a neurosurgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. How are you, doctor? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, we're going to talk about strokes. I guess it's a, uh, easily a top 10 killer in Ohio and elsewhere, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, unfortunately, Dave, about uh, 
700,000 Americans each year are struck by stroke, and uh, that's one every 40 seconds. Uh, it's a leading cause of disability in the state of Ohio, and unfortunately, um, about 20% of uh, those who are struck by stroke uh, pass each year. The good news is, as you probably know, that over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, there have been very effective treatments uh, for stroke that have been made available. Is it a preventable situation? Yeah, absolutely. Many strokes can be prevented. Uh, stroke is a heterogeneous category where there are several different types of diseases that are lumped into that. There are bleeding type strokes and there are uh, ischemic type strokes. In the ischemic type strokes, many are caused by the usual vascular uh, risk factors, things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, um, compounded by obesity and smoking. And uh, most uh, Americans who are afflicted by one of those conditions can do a great amount of risk reduction by eliminating or improving those conditions in their lifestyle. And from what I read, it sounds like if it does happen to you, there's, there's different ways that it can manifest itself, perhaps even a, a temporary situation that doesn't seem to do any long-term effect, but it's really important to get help. Yeah, unfortunately, stroke is one of those things that can be very difficult to diagnose. Uh, if you compare it to heart attack, where a lot of people, you know, have a sudden onset of severe chest pain um, and shortness of breath, there's not uh, a lot of mystery going on what's, what's happening there. But with stroke, depending upon what type of stroke is happening or what part of the brain is being affected, the symptoms can be uh, quite different. And even for healthcare professionals uh, like physicians and experienced nurses, they can have some trouble uh, diagnosing stroke. Commonly, what you see is... Uh, asymmetry of the performance or function of the body. It comes on very suddenly. So for instance, if you're essentially a normal person and all of a sudden you can't talk or you can't move your arm or leg or your face is drooping, these would be uh, obvious signs of some of the more typical types of stroke. It can be helpful to remember a mnemonic known as FAST, F-A-S-T, which stands for facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulties, and T, time to call EMS, because the chances of improving your function after having a stroke is entirely time-dependent to treatment. And I've heard that you can actually have these symptoms that might go away in a matter of moments, uh, but that it's it's an extreme warning sign that something could happen down the line. That's, That's correct, Dave. That's what's called a transient ischemic attack, or TIA. And uh, it can very well be a uh, warning sign that a significant stroke is coming. So if you have those symptoms that I described, and even if they only last 30 seconds or one minute, it's absolutely important that you call 911, go to the emergency room, and get evaluated for the cause of that TIA, as it may be uh, your only warning sign that a devastating stroke is in your very near future. It's so interesting and bizarre because I've seen uh, there was a a viral video clip a few years ago of a news reporter who was having a stroke on the air while she was doing a live report, and she looked completely normal, but all of a sudden just sort of began speaking gibberish, and you could see a kind of shocked look on her face. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that's uh, how most strokes start. Uh, People are normal one moment and the next moment they are struck with the stroke. And, uh, you know, that's really the genesis of the word is struck by the hand of God um, and, you know, causing this problem. So they can't happen anytime. Um, and it's very important if it's happening to you and you have the capacity or if you're witnessing someone who's having a stroke to call 911 immediately 
uh, because the best way to reduce disability, the best way to have a chance for full recovery is to get yourself into the healthcare system as fast as possible. And that's by calling 911 to activate local EMS. Talking with Cleveland Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Peter Rasmussen, what about taking an aspirin or not taking an aspirin? Well, taking an aspirin a day as a primary stroke prevention can be the right thing for uh, many patients. That's obviously something you want to discuss with your personal physician to understand what's going on. Uh, but it can be helpful in patients who have uh, systemic uh, vascular disease, who've had uh, prior heart attacks, uh, patients with known uh, atherosclerosis, um, or uh, long-standing diabetes, but of course, uh, that's a decision between you and your doctor. I've seen the advice if somebody's uh, suspecting they're having a heart attack to chew a baby aspirin. What about if somebody is suspected of having a stroke? Should they touch aspirin? Uh, I would not recommend that as a, as a first thing. Uh, there can be many types of strokes that can have benefit by getting an early aspirin. But at the same time, there are other types of strokes, the bleeding strokes, uh, where you could actually make the bleeding worse by taking an aspirin. So I wouldn't recommend uh, doing that. I do recommend calling 911 immediately and getting yourself into the healthcare system as soon as possible. And what about treatment these days when somebody is brought in in an emergency after a stroke? Yeah, fortunately, we've got uh, two main uh, uh, tools that are very effective in helping patients with the ischemic type of strokes. These are the strokes where the blood vessels are blocked. Uh, by a blood clot that forms in the blood vessel supplying the brain, or a blood clot that travels to the blood vessel going to the brain. And the two mainstays of treatment right now are what's called thrombolysis, which is a TPA medicine or a medicine similar to that, that the so-called clot-busting medications that can dissolve the blood clot that is formed there. Uh, that's an effective medication up to about three to four and a half hours of symptom onset. Uh, that's a relatively short period of time. That's why I do recommend calling 911 uh, properly. In addition, we have other tools to effectively snare or pull those blood clots out of the blood vessels that are in the brain. That's a procedure performed by uh, surgeons like myself called mechanical thrombectomy. This is one of the most effective treatments in all of medicine that if the blood vessel can be reopened and restore normal blood flow to the brain, uh, sometimes the entire effects of the stroke can be reversed or the effects entirely mitigated. Unfortunately, these are very time-dependent procedures. Um, the brain begins to die within minutes after it's been deprived of blood flow and oxygen. So again, it's very important to activate 911 to get into the healthcare system. Dr. Peter Rasmussen joining us, a neurosurgeon at uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, where can folks find out more information, doctor? is from a website called Get Ahead of Stroke. That's all one word, getaheadofstroke.org. Additional information can be found at the American Heart Association websites as well. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Dave. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma and have don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Joining me on the phone is Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. How are you? Good. How are you? Nice to speak with you, Dave. Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us, uh, just in a nutshell, about the Anti-Defamation League. 
in the country. We were founded over a hundred years ago after the lynching of a Jewish man in the South. And on a daily basis, uh, literally for decades and decades, we respond to uh, hate crimes. We deal with uh, law enforcement and track the extremists. And as well, we work to bring anti-bias, anti-hate content to schools. We're literally the largest trainer of law enforcement in America on issues of extremism and hate. And we are one of the largest providers of anti-hate content in schools, reaching more than a million and a half kids. And today, you know, we're fighting hate on the front lines, whether that's on Facebook, in the political arena, and we're doing it in cities all over America. We have an office there in Cleveland. We've been on the ground in Ohio since the 1960s. And uh, you're out with a book called It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. My first question in looking at the title of that is, Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable. What is the unthinkable? I think the unthinkable is civil war. I think the unthinkable is an explosion uh, so great that it tears our social fabric apart. I think the unthinkable is the point where political violence which remains an exception today, actually becomes the rule. And I I say that we're tipping toward this point based on three factors. Number one, the history of ADL. I mean, again, we've been tracking extremists and monitoring hate for more than a century. We've seen this happen before in places like Europe, Asia, Africa, And it's not so far off. In the book, I talk about what happened in Bosnia just a few decades ago. So number one, we've seen this happen before. Number two, you know, my own personal history, like I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany, and my Jewish grandfather never would have imagined that the country, the only country he'd ever known, my great-grandfather fought in the First World War for Germany, would one day turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, literally destroy everything that he ever loved and slaughter his family and friends. And, you know, I'm the husband of a political refugee from Iran. My wife and her Jewish family lived there for thousands of years, and then some 40-some-odd years ago, never would have imagined that the country, the only one they'd ever known, would turn on them, regard them as enemies of the state, and force them to flee for their lives. And so my own personal history tells me that this can go away in a second if we don't fight for what we have. And that's the third reason I wrote the book. It's, it shares the strategies and tactics and tips that we've developed at ADL to confront hate when it happens, whether that's you know in the classroom, on the college campus, in the workplace, even you know online and social media and other spaces. Talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the ADL. I was going to mention social media. You know, the worldwide connectivity of it can be great. And yet, at the same time, I, I take it that, it that it bears a lot of responsibility for what's going on. Oh, Dave, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the fact of the matter is social media has offered us the ability to connect with people across cultures, across continents. I mean, again, you can be sitting in Cincinnati and suddenly find yourself talking to people on the other side of the planet. That was never previously possible. But the dark side is real. And companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and the other platforms, literally they have amplified through their algorithms some of the most extremist voices in society. 
they've intensified the divide and I think fan the flames rather than cooling them off. And to be honest, Dave, there are loopholes in the law that mean if I say something here today, you know, on Ohio News Network, I could be held accountable, held liable. But if you say it on Facebook or on Instagram, you've got total carte blanche because, again, there's a loophole in the law. So these companies need to put people over profits, and they need to exercise the same degree of responsibility, the same degree of accountability that every other media outlet does in America. There seems to be also uh, a, a huge disconnect or understanding that people have between free speech and free speech without consequences. Yes. I mean, when we lived in a more analog world, I think the reality is people felt compelled to behave with a degree of decency toward their neighbors, toward their colleagues, who they saw face-to-face, right? Who you met at the coffee shop, who you engaged again at the water cooler. Something's changed, though, Dave, dramatically thanks to social media. And let's be clear, the ADL, we're a civil rights organization. We deeply believe and ferociously will defend the First Amendment. But freedom of speech is not the freedom to slander people. Freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. I don't care if you're a conservative or a progressive, a Democrat or a Republican. If you demean people and denigrate them, if you wish to cause them harm and spread that kind of poison online, you should be accountable for that. I mean, it's, I believe in freedom of speech deeply, passionately, as you can hear, but that doesn't equal freedom of reach. And the platforms need to realize they are responsible when they propagate hate through their services. Well, you mentioned the possibility or the fear of a civil war in the U.S., uh, and they call democracy the great experiment. Can it survive in this sort of environment? I'm glad you asked that question, Dave, because despite, I think, the hazards in front of us, I am incredibly hopeful. Look, this nation has survived civil unrest, economic depression, world wars. I believe we have the capability as a country to come together, but we need to recognize that it's all of our collective responsibility. At a time when hate crimes are up 12% in 2020, according to the FBI, anti-Semitic incidents have doubled in recent years. The level of hate is real and it's terrifying. And yet, if Americans come together and start to interrupt intolerance when it happens, re-engage in civil society, start reapplying some basic values like humanism and decency and tolerance. I mean, I don't believe in moral relativism. I don't believe in cancel culture. I think everyone has the power to be redeemed, and we need to embrace them, and we need to work at it. And if we do that, Dave, I think all things are possible. And this great American experiment, the greatest democracy the world has ever known, can survive for another 250 years. Talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. He's the author of It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, Well, I'll just say, Dave, I think, again, whether you're in Ohio or anywhere else in the country, the issues are real. And I wrote the book to share strategies and tips about what you can do to stop hate, what you can do to stop America from, again, tipping toward the unthinkable. I hope people will read it and find it useful. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dave.
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.